So today I am joined in studio by Akeen Sawyer, the Africa lead of Decred, uh, and also a longtime blockchain and Africa expert, two things that it seems like are converging very, very quickly. Uh, Akeen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what is Decred's interest in Africa? And, and, and maybe we should start off by just talking a little bit about what Decred is. Sure. Um, so Decred is sort of loosely defined as a proof-of-work, proof-of-stake hybrid blockchain. Okay. Um, it was, you know, developed by a team that had built a second implementation of Bitcoin called BTC Suites on Go, Golang. And, you know, they decided after sort of experiencing the um, governance process um, Bitcoin that there are some material issues in how it was structured um, just in terms of a little bit of a lack of transparency on how decisions were made and sort of where power like was centered and so they decided to develop and build Decred to try to solve this problem around governance and ensuring that various stakeholder groups had some level of alignment to ensure that you had a sustainable way to um, build and um, you know evolve a blockchain over time. Okay. Um, so as a result of that, you know, they came up with this idea of a hybrid proof of work, proof of stake blockchain platform. And the idea there was that you would have you know a system where uh, miners, token holders, which you know are effectively folks that own Decred. Um, and then the developers and folks who work on the network had some level of you know alignment and skin in the game, and 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 then you know some uh, some clarity into how decisions were made. Um, so you know the new thing about Decred is you know uh, with Bitcoin you know block rewards go solely to miners, um, but in Decred we have like three pots in which block rewards are split. Sixty um, percent go to miners. 30% go to what are called ticket holders. And so those are folks who have um, tokens, but also stake their tokens. And then 10% goes into a treasury that effectively funds developers and folks that work on the platform. Okay. And let, let's talk, so let's kind of break it down because this is kind of um, deep into blockchain. So what is a block reward? Um, so typically, you know, with proof of work um, blockchains like Bitcoin, right, which is the first um, Bitcoin is secured by miners who are effectively, you know, trying to solve these complex math problems in order to record transactions. And in order to do that, you have to deploy, you know, a lot of computing power um, to do that. And so there's a cost to that, right? There's a cost to sort of having the rigs, using electricity and running these machines effectively, um, you know, in competition with others to kind of fight for a block reward. And the block reward is basically the reward these miners get for recording transactions and securing the network. So the mere act of, you know, contributing hash power, which is computing power to record these transactions, makes it really hard to effectively, you know, um, curtail the network, right? So you need computing power to have the right to store transactions. And that forms a layer of security, basically, um, in blockchain space. Okay. 
So why, why did you originally get into blockchain? Because, I mean, you, I think, are unique in that you came to it from the Africa side, right? Like, you were already yeah. working in the Africa space and development space before blockchain was even a thing, and then you discovered it from that context, right? Yep. So, you know, I grew up in Nigeria um, through secondary school and then, you know, spent all my college, grad school, my working career here in the U.S., um, and about eight years ago, I had the opportunity to invest in a mobile payments company in Sierra Leone that's run by a friend of mine um, who's from Ghana. But he moved out of Sierra Leone to run this company. And um, he did a friends, friends and family round at the time. And, you know, I put some money in and, you know, I got me a seat on the board. Um, and I did that because, you know, at the point of my career, where I was really thinking a little bit about Africa. Back then, I was imagining consulting. I was trying to do a little bit more in Africa. I wasn't quite sure what that was, but this presented an opportunity. And I thought mobile payments were really interesting because it was at the you know junction of you know mobile penetration just scaling across Africa, and this idea that you know the future of financial services is going to be on mobile platforms. At least my my thought was that if you're going to get um, the majority of Africa in a formal financial system it was going to be on mobile platforms. And so that was my general thesis around this idea of, all right, you know, mobile payments sound interesting. At the time, um, M-Pesa was already taking off, so there was an example in the, in the marketplace, and then you had a number of mobile payments companies begin to prop up in other parts of Africa. Um, so that's how I got into the fintech payment space. And along the way, a couple years into it, you know, we realized relatively, relatively clearly that um, the remittance space was really large, right? So Sierra Leone had been a post-conflict country, and a lot of the GDP was coming from outside the country, right? From the diaspora, from NGOs, from U.S. government, USAID, right? And so we realized very quickly that remittance space really was a large contributor of GDP across Sub-Saharan Africa. And we also realized that it was a really big problem in terms of the cost of moving value into Africa. And, and so that was a, you know, so think about it, large, you know, captive market, so to speak, of value coming in, but very inefficient um, for a number of reasons. And so I started spending some time just thinking about how does one really you know, solve this issue? Like, what are the issues, what are the, what are the real problems around why remittances were expensive? And a lot of it was tied to, you know, regulation and just very, very strong incumbents, you know, that were effectively gatekeepers, you know, the banks and, you know, a couple of remittance companies. And at the same time, um, you know, Bitcoin had been around for quite a while, but wasn't really, hadn't sort of gotten the level of, um, awareness that we have now. Um, and I just started doing some research into it and, you know, then, re, you know, happened upon blockchain, what is blockchain, uh, the protocol level, and just thought this really was the future of financial services. And this could be one way to solve this issue of expensive remittances. Right. And so is Splash, the, uh, the mobile payments company in Sierra Leone, are they doing anything with blockchain? Are they no, looking at no, it at all? So, no. So Splash no. is a, you know, traditional mobile payments company. Mm. Um, it's you know he- based heavily on an agent network, so which are effectively like branches, but it could be a convenience store, it could be a guy on the street, and that became you know they basically are the bridge for you know the populace to 
um, get access to banking services. Yeah. So Splash itself is not built on a blockchain platform. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, the way I think about it is um, you sort of go after value. And so if you look at the amount of money that comes into sub-Saharan Africa annually, um, you know, Nigeria alone is, depending on what statistic you believe, I think it's between 40 and $60 billion going into the country annually, and about 10% of that is absorbing fees. Um, so if you're estimating that to be four to six billion dollars in fees, then if you can kind of, you know, go from ten percent to I don't know one percent, there's a lot of value you can kind of save and capture. So you know, my thinking is, you know, you'll have like, that's kind of the roundabout way I think you get to, um, uh, in my view, you know, just proliferation of financial digital financial services. Right? If you solve the remittance problem and put more money in the hands of people and get them onto these digital platforms, then you can build other financial products on top of it. And if you do that leveraging blockchain, you know, you have very little friction in terms of, you know, just transfer costs and transactions costs. Then you can create these new products that are more accessible um, to Africans from a cost perspective. And these products can be sourced anywhere, right? Because... You now have a protocol where you can move money globally, you know, with very little friction and very little cost. So you can effectively fund financial products anywhere in the world and sell into African markets. So do you think that any of these mobile money or mobile operators in Africa, you know, obviously MTN being one of the largest, do you think that they're going to do any sort of pivot towards the direction of blockchain? Or do you think that there's an element of like an innovator's dilemma where it's like they've, they've spent all this all these resources building the pipes and building the distributions and it would just kind of disrupt what they've, the infrastructure that they've already had in place. No, so, I mean, I kind of think about, you know, the, the telcos or those who sort of have pipes on the ground as, you know, key parts of infrastructure, right? So um, if you look at what's going on in telecom across most of Africa um, over the years, there's been, um, like most markets, right, a compression of cost, right? So, um Voice services are relatively inexpensive. Um, you know, texting is relatively inexpensive. Uh, I think access to broadband is still limited because that's still expensive. But I think over time, the cost of that will go down. Right? So the telcos basically have, are, are providing this service of aggregating the local markets, getting them onto you know, mobile platforms. And you know, now MTN, for example, is I know, for example, has MTN money in a number of countries which is basically a mobile money, and they just recently got a license in Nigeria. So I think that for most of those big local players, there's still a lot of the market for them to sort of go after and aggregate, even with just you know regular tech, off-the-shelf technology. Um, but I think over time what, what will happen is you'll have blockchain-based protocols that are integrating with these folks, saying, all right, you have a marketplace, you have a network, how do we bring more value to that network? And I think, you know, telcos inherently um, and large players eventually don't become the point of innovation, right? Others innovate and find ways to now access the markets or their user race and figure out a way to split the value. Yeah. So I think that's basically what I think is going to happen. So is MTN money basically their equivalent of like uh, M-Pesa to Safaricom? Effectively, exactly. Okay. Yep. Interesting. And so that's, that's active in, in, in all their markets or just no, the ones where so they got the I license? No, so I know it's a handful of markets. I, I mean, 
some some markets are more liberal than others, right? So I believe MTN Money is in Ghana, for example. But for years in Nigeria, they've been, you know, Nigerian law basically has prohibited um, telcos from getting into financial services. Right. But I think those rules are now being relaxed. Yeah. And I think the initial resistance was because, you know, frankly, the banks were powerful incumbents and resisted that. Yeah. So, um, and I think that stifled um, the growth of mobile money in Nigeria, for example, relative to um, places like Kenya, Tanzania, where, you know, it's been telco-led. Um, and so from a customer standpoint, it makes sense, right, for the telcos to have access. But, um, and so mobile money has not, you know, in, in countries where there's been that, like, division, mobile money has had less of an opportunity to kind of proliferate. Right. And I think now some of those regulators are now saying, all right, we, we need to sort of change our approach and open up the market to um, telcos. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Well, Nigeria's their banking system's interesting in that, like NIBS, their inter, inter, their interbank uh, sentiment system is in some ways more advanced than you know a lot of the developed world. And like the Federal Reserve is, ju- they just announced their own platform to do like you know inter, interbanking settlements. Um, and so in some ways, Nigeria, the the banks kind of uh, developed a little bit quicker than than we did over here, um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's it's kind of like you know if you think about it, it's kind of the later you are to the game, the the well, the more it makes sense to build things um, a little differently, right? Mm-hmm. So Nigeria, when Nigeria got access to basically digital services like ATMs and digital transfers, it made sense for a regulator to be stood up. That basically is the, um, the 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 major set like the sole settlement system for financial transactions, and that's NIBS, right? Right. Interbank settlement system, and so every one way or the other, anyone who's doing digital financial services plugs into NIBS as the main switch, and that essentially created interoperability across financial services, right? So now you can move money from any bank account to any bank account, regardless of where it resides. So I mean. It kind of made sense to do it that way. It seemed pretty obvious. But yeah. I think in other countries where you had just large incumbents and heavy regulated, you know, institutions, things kind of happen in more of a piecewise way. And, you know, that oftentimes slows the adoption of, of technology. Right. And what about, like, all of these trends and, and privacy? Like, do you, do you think that the African, the average African, like, cares about privacy to the same extent as we do in the West? I mean, I feel like here in the U.S., we've... We've become pretty, um, pretty indifferent and numb towards hackings because they've just have hap- they happened so much. You know, like like the Capital One hack that happened, uh, it was in the news for maybe a couple of days and then kind of went out because it, it it just happens all the time. And I think that blockchain can sort of flip the script when it comes to privacy and ownership of certainly ownership of data, right? Um, but do you, I mean, do you think that? the average African even cares or is kind of privy to kind of that whole, the issues are surrounding that stuff? Um, no, right? Because I think people are more interested in just, you know, fulfilling the basic needs, right? right? Food, shelter, and clothing. Mm-hmm. The majority of Africans are still, uh, you know, trying to solve for those basic needs. And so when you start talking about privacy, it's like, you know, yeah. give me a dollar, an extra dollar, <laughs> so I can have an extra meal. It's not, right. you know, so... Um, but it, it still, I don't think it, it doesn't mean that privacy isn't important and isn't an issue. And I think, um, you know, a lot of African regulators also think about that, right? They think about people's privacy and 
I don't necessarily know that they're putting as much um, funding into it or they're putting as much thought into it, but it, it is a concern. Um, and I think that's a big issue that, you know, even we at Decred really are thinking about quite a bit because ultimately you have to have the ability to secure your, your wealth and maintain your privacy. And, you know, constitutionally in the U.S., you know, privacy is really important. Um, so I think even though we're seeing a lot of privacy breaches and lapses, they come, you know, at huge cost to these institutions, right? Um, you know, Facebook you know, got slapped with a $5 billion fine. Yeah, Capital sorry. One's probably going to get a fine, right? Every, you know, and I mean, so you, some people could say, well, that's the cost of doing business. That's a risk. Um, but I think, you know, I think I think the average person or average American is thinking more and more about privacy, um, especially with what's happened with you know, like I said, with Facebook, you know, and people not realizing how much of their privacy they were giving away, right? right? Not really understanding what came in the fine print, and I think people are beginning to understand more how private information is being monetized, right? Think about you know how most t big tech firms in the U.S. make money. It's based on your private information and the ability to sell that information or get insights from that information that is, is valuable, you know? And so, you know, data and information is the new oil, as people right. say, right? And so I think people are becoming more conscious of that. And I think it's going to become um, more and more of a, an issue we hear a lot more about. Yeah. Yeah. I read an article a couple of days ago about a guy who went uh, into Facebook setting and printed out his history of, of data, or you can you can look at all the data that Facebook actually owns on you. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, it came out to bigger than this stack of books right here of just all the data that uh, Facebook has collected on this guy, you know, over the course of his usage of it. And, you know, when it comes to Libra and Facebook's kind of introduction of our currency, it certainly makes sense why they would do that considering the, the distribution that they own, right? And that is kind of the game, especially in Africa. If you have the distribution, there's so much monetary and financial uh, financial products that you can launch on the back end of that. And WhatsApp and Facebook, when you combine the two, I mean, they certainly do own a distribution in Africa. But do you think that Libra is a, is a good, is going to be a good thing for Africa, or how do you think that that plays out once it's live? And I think Libra is terrible for Africa, mm. right? So I think in the short term. Um, so, so you can look at it from, from a surface level, right? If Libra is now accessible and proliferates around Africa, for example, it gives people access to a currency that is indexed to the dollar, whatever that basket is going to be. Um, and it gives people on the street access to a more secure um, form of you know, you know, store of wealth. Because most African currencies are, you know, highly inflationary, and you know, based on economic cycles, they lose a lot of value. Um, primarily because most African economies are commodity-based, right? Mm -hmm. And so, when you go into recession, the price of oil, the price of copper, the price of cobalt, the price of, you know, grains goes down. And if that's where most of your income as a country is coming from, then you know, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it hard. And so if the average person now has access to a better store of value, you know, or access to some sort of dollar-denominated sort of value, then you can preserve your wealth. Um, so on the surface, for the consumer, 
right? If everyone's kind of thinking of themselves as like, you know, this individual actor, it sounds like a really good thing. And it also solves the problem of allowing, you know, Africans access to markets that are still pretty hard to access today, right? So mo the average African has problems paying for things globally. Um, you know, if you're originally a transaction out of Nigeria, oftentimes it's blacklisted. It's like, okay, where is this coming from? We're not yeah. sure, right? And so, and so in some ways on the surface it sounds good, but I think in the long term, um, if you make the assumption that most people are rational and most people are going to store value in Libra and because it allows them to have a better store and also gives them access to be able to pay for things, you know, pay for iTunes, pay for like even like basic things they, they use and products, um, then, you know, you'll see a big migration of people who will be dumping their local currencies for Libra, like I would. Right. Um, but what that does is it pulls the rug, you know, from under the regulators, right? The central banks. Like, how does that affect your ability to leverage monetary policy if your currency basically has lost, um, you, lose, you lose monetary policy making power? So I don't think any rational central bank, you know, in a third world country or in Africa is going, I mean, they, they should literally be like saying, no, we're going to block it um, because you know, it makes no sense for them as a sovereign entity to effectively allow another currency to just basically take over their markets. Yeah. I mean, do you think they even, they're even kind of aware of the threat that it poses? Because it, like it seems like Facebook is going to launch it very close to, if not right, when the next recession actually kicks in and that, you know, the currency is deflating or inflating at a time when Libra officially launches and becomes um, certainly one of the best store of values for the average African. I mean, but I, I don't know. So I think I don't think anything, anything is set, set in stone. I think there's still lots of hoops that, you know, Libra has and the Calibra Association would have to jump through. Yeah. And it's not quite clear yet if, you know, it's going to make it in its current form past U.S. regulators. Now, I do think it's actually in the best interest of U.S. regulators to back it because while it removes the power of regulators in country, right, so across Africa, that power that's taken away from African central banks now actually moves towards the Fed, right? Because you effectively have, you know, a pseudo version of the dollar, you know, that f from a company that's going to be heavily regulated if it goes through. And it actually gives, I think, the U.S. government a lot more power um, to influence and, you know, you know leverage its economic might to you know, effectively control other countries. Mm. Um, so I think you're going to see, you know, I think the resistance is going to come first from Europe. <laughs> European countries are going to kind of say, all right, what does this mean? Um, and, and then I think you'll see a lot of resistance from, certainly China is not going to allow it. That's definitely not going to happen. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen in India either. And so I think what will happen is if those countries mount which i which i what i believe would be you know i think china is pretty much a, a given but if india basically says no it's not going to happen here and i think a lot of african countries would take their cues from that saying, yeah. well, if the indians are saying this is not good, good enough for them then maybe we should thinking twice about it mm -hmm. um but i think it's a it's a really bold move for facebook yeah to set this sure. thing up and i think it's almost like the last grasp of the incumbent tech ecosystem to remain relevant right that's in wow that's an interesting comment well i do think that europe for sure has shown that they have no issue 
with pushing back against some of the U.S. tech giants. I mean, they have they have not necessarily been that too too um, uh, too nice to Google <laughs> with with some of the fines that the EU has been slapping on them. And it seems like right now in Africa, the battle of um, internet and five G is certainly being won by Huawei. I don't think there's you know any any argument against Huawei kind of being currently uh, one of the one of the winners in implementing IT ICT infrastructure in a lot of African countries. And so we'll see how you know if Facebook does kind of allow the U.S. to exert its uh, geopolitical might on some of these countries. It's going to be interesting to see how China responds potentially through Huawei or WeChat. Because uh, I know I, I know that WeChat doesn't have in itself a lot of traction in Africa, but with the infrastructure of the internet, or maybe it does. I, I, I'm not aware if it does, um, but I know that uh, I guess Flutterwave just announced their partnership with uh, with Alibaba. So that certainly, you know, uh, certainly seems like China's making their move when it comes to you know I, I see the ICT war ICT wars in, in Africa. But one thing that that does introduce is uh, the issue of governance moving forward and kind of maintaining stability in a world where, um, you know, the recession hits, Facebook launches, they can't use their monetary policy in the same effective way that they have in the past. How can blockchain platforms like Decred help with uh, good governance and stability and, and yeah. transparency? So, I mean, so I think it, it could do a great deal, right? And so... Um, when you think about, you know, I think the, the base level problem you're solving for is I as an individual, African or wherever it might be, I want to be able to um, store my hard-earned income or value in something that's relatively stable, right? Um, and if you can provide access to Africans to Bitcoin, to Decred, to some store of value that they think uh, is relatively reliable, I have full control over it. Um, no sovereign entity can sort of go after my coins, right? You're solving for lots of problems and potential issues. Um, you know, I can move it across the world in terms of, you know, across borders, which is a challenge for lots of African, Africans in terms of cost. Um, you know, Bitcoin is heavily used as a medium of exchange across Africa. Um, I read a statistic that, you know, 8% of the volume of Bitcoin transactions are in Nigeria, Alone. In the world? Yeah, globally. Wow. Uh, I'm, not sure, I'm trying to remember where that source was. Um, but I, I don't think that's ridiculous to think about because, you know, Nigeria is a very large economy. Nigeria is heavily dependent on imports and trading. And it's expensive, right, to transact. And so if you can leverage Bitcoin, which gives you access to basically transact in places that you don't even have access today, let alone talking about cost, then the rational thing to do would be to do that, right, to leverage it. So I think Bitcoin is heavily used as a medium of exchange in Nigeria for all sorts of global transactions. Um, so I think that, you know, for, so, so that's the first thing. It's, all right, the base idea of having this store of value I can use in exchange. But beyond that, our decred, we're very heavily focused on governance, right? So we, we, we think about governance in terms of how the blockchain and the network is governed and making sure that the transparent system that's pretty clear to everyone on what it means to participate, how you participate, and how you can be involved in decision making. Right? And our view is that you know, we're trying to capture um, 
you know, the broad intellect of the network to make the best decisions, right? In many ways, in a very democratic way um, and very transparent. And as much as possible, trying to remove middlemen in decision-making, right? So it's not a representative system. There's no, um, you know, middlemen who you now defer to who make your decisions for you. As much as possible, like the individual who's the individual stakeholder gets a say um, and a way to vote, um, vote their minds. And I think that's really important. And I think it's important in the African context because, you know, across Africa there's a massive governance issue. Um, you know, most, most of Africa I think now is democratic, but they're very young democracies. You know, most are you know, less than 15, 20 years old. And, you know, we still have a really big challenge in terms of not just how the governments are governed, but across society, even if you look at corporate entities, look at companies, right, I think overall, you know, there's a massive governance issue, right, in terms of just controls and transparency. And I think that blockchain platforms can go a long way to increasing transparency, right? I mean, anywhere from voting to you know how decisions are made on a corporate level you know so think about a corporation that has employees has shareholders who you know have certain powers and vote on decisions right there's no reason why you can't employ blockchain systems to ensure that you know these individuals are empowered to make you know to vote and you can audit that you know it was transparent and it was clear um so i think you know blockchain systems can go a long way to ensuring free and fair elections, free and fair decision-making, and, you know, transparency how, deci- transparency how decisions are made. And I think if we can, you know, I think that's one of the big challenges across Africa where, you know, there's a lack of transparency into many things, and that just increases the cost of everything, even just transactions costs. You know, you know we don't have good identity systems, so, like, who am I dealing with as a counterparty? How can I verify that they are who they are? How can I verify that, you know, they have money in the bank and the values there, right? And so, you know, any, any, anything that can bring transparency into systems, I think, makes it clear where the value is and reduces costs. And if you can reduce costs, um, then investment will come in. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that, I mean, you know, with blockchain, it just depends on how, how it's implemented and who the implementing parties are. And as long as it's implemented with the right framework, uh, it certainly can go a long way to solve a lot of those problems. I mean, certainly moving value around the continent. I mean, I think that's use case number one, or at least it should be in terms of implementation. But next bull run, what's your, what's your prediction? When's, when's the next crypto bull market happening? Nah, it's, been a, it's been a while. Like, so, I don't know. I, I don't, so... I, I kind of feel like we're not. It's not going to be like what it was in the past. I don't think we're going to, right? So it's like in investments, everyone says like you know the past is not a good predictor of the future. I'm not sure we're going to have this massive bull run like we had in 2017 ever again, mm. right? I think, right? So I think there were some, there were some unique things that happened at the time that created that bull run, right? And some of it was the fact that. A lot of people were running unregistered um, ICOs. ICOs, right? Basically, selling unregistered securities, and they could do that because there's a mechanism to do that, right? You could create a smart contract in Ethereum. You could buy ETH. You can, you know, raise money on Ether, 
And if you think, in my view, like a big part of the, the inflation of the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum in the last run was people now seeing this as an opportunity to basically, you know, raise funding for all sorts of things. You know, a, lot, some, a good number of them were scams, but even those that were not scams, like legit entities, they're very, very high risk. It's like investing in startups, right? And there was just a lot of money and people went after that money. Right. And so I think post, you know, 2017 and getting to the bear market, a lot of sovereignties have clamped down on that. I mean, the U.S. has clamped down heavily on ICOs or registered securities have gone after like the most blatant frauds. And they've basically said <laughs> that that game is done. Right. So that's one. I think that, but that know, in this sense, that's a good thing, right? Because it, it, it forces the market to become more mature. It does. And I think it, it sort of removes this idea that, you know, the blockchain space is for criminals and people who are just looking to grab money. Right which I think is a narrative that a lot of, you know, fudsters have, <laughs> have been pushing. But, you know, so I think that's a good thing. And I think it will allow the legitimate projects that are actually doing things the right way um, a chance to sort of rise to the top. So, you know, I think that lots of these projects that got funded during the last cycle are just going to have like a slow bleed and a slow death. Yeah. And I think you're already seeing that with a lot of, you know, Bitcoin has, I don't know, tripled this year. I think the low was like 2,800. Now it's like 10,000 and change. Um, but we haven't seen like a lot of the alts like moving accordingly. There have been a handful of alts that have done really well, but the vast majority have not recovered, quote unquote. And I don't think most of them are going to because mm. I don't think most of them are going to be successful. Um, so, you know, so I think taking, taking that away, you're taking a huge, you know, the demand that existed for ICOs is, has shrunk considerably. And that's taken away this huge use case, effectively, that ran for a couple of years away. Um, I think that, you know, institutions are coming in because they see Bitcoin and some cryptocurrencies as um, a non-correlated asset to um, securities markets. And... You know, it's gotten some legitimacy because, you know, Bitcoin has worked for over, t over 10 years. Yeah. And it still works and it still functions. And, and so we're seeing institutions beginning to come in, you know, started with some hedge funds who are high risk. But now we're seeing very legitimate institutions like Fidelity, um, you know, TD Ameritrade, folks who want to like now issue and sell Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So I think that, you know, we're going to see this sort of steady rise, in my view. I don't know if they think it's going to be this massive, crazy run. Maybe, but I think it's going to be more of a steady rise of continued adoption. I think Bitcoin's price will grow. I think price of like you know projects that are legitimate and doing interesting things will also grow as well. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> Akeen Sawyer, Africa Lead at Decred. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. <laughs>